The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the fact that we belong to you individually and corporately. You are great and good, wise and, and very, very kind to save us and then to make us into a single people, a family. One that you take charge of, one that you father, one that you shepherd. And then we are a family in which we have under-shepherds. We're all sheep together, but then we are also sheep and shepherd together. And as you reign over that and, and give us instruction about that this morning, Lord, I pray that you would make us wise and careful and thankful and grateful. So make us wise, help us to hear and, and to understand what you put before us and, and thankful and grateful to cause us to wonder at it and recognize your, your kindness to us. Teach us and grow us up, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. There's a lot of truth in the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. People are often least gracious and least grateful for those that they know best. It's ironic, but it's, it's often true. We come to take for granted and overlook such people. We can presume upon them and be less enamored with what's good in them, more critical of what we see as off or wrong in them. It's true in all relationships, in marriages, families, close friendships, and it's true in the church, particularly in the relationship between the congregation and its leaders, its ministers. And I'm speaking this morning of minister using the capital M minister, distinct from the church, because that's how Paul sets up this passage. We're going to look at that relationship this morning of congregation and minister and see where it can go wrong and where it did in Paul's case, and also how it can go right. We look at that at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In this section, Paul's ongoing engagement with the Corinthians is taking a bit of a turn as he's kind of sort of coming to land the plane. He's coming towards the conclusion of this letter. For some time now, he's been boasting, making a fool of himself, as we've seen over the last couple of chapters, needing to kind of compare himself to the false apostles that are there present in the church in Corinth and in one way or another showing himself in, in light and in contrast with them because he's been ironically boasting in weakness. It's been strange. He has to compare himself favorably to these guys, but he does that by showing how weak he is and how frail he is and all the, the hardships that he looks at and embraces constantly. In that, he, he is saying the weakness shows off the power of God in him. And that's been unusual. And all throughout, it's been essentially a me versus them. An odd one, but it's been a me versus them discussion. Criticism of the false teachers. But here at the end, he takes a turn and concludes chapter 12 with some criticism of the church itself. Essentially, he's going to poke at and put, his, put a, a, an unhappy finger on what has gone wrong in there, what, what the familiarity bred, 
and what it should have bred in their relationship. Something's wrong there, and I, I have to say here, and we'll probably say a few times throughout the sermon, I'm taking what's coming next, right? That, that, that's how we preach. We, we take a book of the Bible as God gave it to us, and we look at what's next. This is what's next. And so this is a particular problem there. It is not a particular problem here right now. And so, say at the beginning, I'll say it throughout. I think there's something here which would be good to look at, which God has put in front of us, which we need to understand. And in no way do I want to say, understand the subtle message, the undertone here. There isn't a subtle message or an undertone. This is what the Bible says. This church and the relationship that I have with it, I'm so thankful for and have been so thankful for for years. So there's no undertone, no subtle message here. But there is a message here. And there's a point, which we're going to look at, about how minister and congregation related wrongly in this context, but we'll look at it and say how they can relate rightly. How they should and how they can help to come to do what they should. That's going to be in this passage today, and I think it's it's, it's encouraging to me, at least. So that's where we're going. I'm going to read the whole passage. This is ch- chapter 12, verse 11 through the end. It's lengthy. I'll read it rather quickly. And the end part of it will pick up again a little bit next week, too. Chapter 12, beginning verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brothers with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? I've been thinking all along that we have been, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. I'll stop there this week. A long passage with two observations. Here's the first. A church should gratefully honor its Christ-like ministers. 
A church should gratefully honor its Christ-like ministers. Verse 11, Paul's winding down this foolish boasting that he's been engaging. He says, I've been a fool, and it's been so awkward, all this that I've been saying all along, but you forced me to it, which is not some sort of a childish retort. You made me do it. That's not what he's saying. He means this quite truthfully. What you did, how you all behaved, left me no other choice. I had to spell out two chapters worth of critical comparison between myself and these other guys. And as awkward as that was for me, it's actually a problem on your part, church. I should have been commended by you. By you. Not by me, by you. You should have commended me. I shouldn't have had to do it myself. I should have been commended, not criticized or insulted, not treated with contempt, and certainly not allowed others to do that in your presence without you coming to my defense. I should have been commended because there's a lot, and I mean a lot, in my ministry that's commendable. I am not at all inferior to these so-called super-apostles. Repeating what he said before back in chapter 11, remember back back there, verses 5 and 6, he said, I'm not inferior to these super-apostles. True, I'm not a trained speaker, but I have the knowledge of God that I in every way have shown to you quite plainly. That's an interesting statement because he, he says that to them knowing that they know it's true. They are Christians, and they know God, and they know so much about God because Paul taught them all of this. They know it. And here, likewise, in verse 12, he can say such bold things as he says here, knowing that the same thing is, in fact, in fact the case. It's true. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Grammatically, that statement's a passive, indicating that Paul doesn't mean he performed them. He means God performed them through him. They were performed by God through Paul with utmost patience. Signs from God with, in, all, all through the middle of all this hardship and suffering, all this weakness that Paul's been talking about. Not instead of, not, not instead of the weakness, not instead of the teaching, but with it and alongside of it, supernatural, amazing, like book of Acts sort of stuff through Paul, poured out to show this one is the apostle of God. And Paul can say, you all saw all of that. And I know you did. Which is really interesting. This is the first time he brings that up. He didn't mention any of that in the boasting section. But he knows they know that it's true. Stuff like in the book of Acts where he He makes people blind and people come back to life and wonders. I did that amongst you, Corinthians, not any less than I did anywhere else in any other church, not anywhere less. What was lacking for me being in your, what was like, oh, one thing was lacking. I didn't give you a bill. I'm so sorry. I didn't take your money. Please forgive me. Laced with sarcasm. What's his point? 
Never mind all the false teachers, the servants of Satan who have wormed their way in. I've been talking about them. We know them. We get them. We understand their deal, where they're coming from. I'm talking to you, church. There's a problem here. Why didn't you commend me when they came around? That's on you, not them. You witnessed all of this. You had all the Christ-like suffering lived in front of you, all the teaching of God, all the supernatural signs and wonders of God that you would ever need, that anyone else ever had. You should have commended me. And if you look down at verse 15, seeing how I refused to take from you but spent myself for you, loving you, you should have loved me all the more. My, your affection towards me should have grown instead of diminished. And then you accuse me of taking advantage of you. On, on what evidence? Did I ever do that? Again, he can say this, and these rhetorical questions in 17 and 18, because he knows they know that didn't happen. Did I take advantage of you? Did the people I sent take advantage of you? He's, he's throwing that out there like this. No! Something's wrong. Now, as I said, I am not talking to you. Please, hear that. Paul's talking to them, and these details here are, are not exactly our details, okay? The, the burden that he's talking about, the, the taking advantage of, that's related to the money thing that we talked about earlier, how he would not receive from them money for other reasons. That's all these details, and his frustration with it all is, is the particulars are their situation, not ours. But there is a point here, his main point. His character was pure. He knows they know that. He's above reproach. He loves them deeply and sacrificially. He's given his life for them. He's faced all the suffering that he knows they know. His life and his ministry bears the supernatural fingerprint of God and is full of knowledge and wisdom and teaching about the gospel that has changed their lives. And he knows they know that. He is, no doubt, a Christ-like minister in their presence for years. And so, therefore, there is an ought on the church. Appropriately so, they ought to respond to him in a certain way. Obviously, they didn't. But how should they have? How should a church today respond to such ministers? Nobody's ever going to be like Paul again. But such ministers, people who are resembling him, who are, who are Christ-like in a human fallen way. With commendation. They should respond, the church should respond with commendation, commending, with honor and respect and approval and praise. And with increasing love, affection, gratefulness, and a matching generosity. That's what should be what Paul clearly expected as appropriate for them. That's right. Why is it right? Well, in some way, it would be decent and polite, yes. That he, he'd, he'd been 
so good and so kind and so gracious to them, it would be appropriate to respond. You, if people are good to you, you should be good back to them. It, that it would be appropriate to do it, yes, because it's polite. But there's something more here that I think is, I find interesting, and I think not only will express more of why it's right, but will help us get to the ought. Will help us to do what we should, to be what we should towards Christ-like ministers. And really, again, let me say, to excel still more. This, this church I have for years, I think Pastor Bryant would say the same thing for years. We feel deeply encouraged by this church. But it's here, and maybe we need to learn from it what's here, to keep this attitude, to keep from straying from it in the future, or as you know, congregations change, people will come and go, and as you go somewhere else, maybe you'll need to find yourself in a different situation and you remember some of this. So how, how do we come to be a church that appropriately commends or appropriately honors or excels still more at being that kind of a church? I think this is interesting. And it shows up if we look again at Paul's phrase at the end of verse 11. Even though I am nothing... You got to think about that. You should commend me. I'm, I'm all of this, even though I am nothing, Paul says. That is not just formal, let alone false humility. As I mentioned in the next verse, the very next verse, Paul's grammar points out that God performed the signs and wonders, works through him. He really does mean, I myself am nothing. Or if you remember from earlier in the book, I myself am just a cracked clay pot. That's it. And what's commendable in me, any blessing you might meet in me, that's not me, that's Christ in me shining out of me. What instructs you, what blesses you, what matures you, that's not me either, that's Christ in me coming out of me to you. True, I brought him to you. But even that's only because he sent me. He shaped me, he filled me, he, he used me. So let's be crystal clear here. I am nothing. That's not false humility. That's just the honest truth. So we think this through. When you see, what that means is that when you see a faithful Christ-like minister, you're not seeing a gifted man. You're seeing a gift from God to you. Catch that. We think we're talking about congregation and minister. We're really talking about congregation and the God who sent the minister. Because the minister is nothing. The minister is a pot made out of clay in which God comes to the congregation. So actually, this is not a discussion at this level. It's a discussion at this level. You're seeing not a gifted man, but a gift from God. And so commending and loving this gift, honoring this gift, is really an expression of gratitude towards the God who gave it. 
If I'm your neighbor and I've got a son and I send him over to your place to help you do some yard work, and while he's there, you actually make him do all of the work, and you don't give him any water or snack, and at the end you insult him and send him home. How did he feel? Not very well taken care of, not loved. How do I feel when he comes back and tells me that? How did you treat him? It's probably the last time I do that. Right? It's, it's primarily a relationship between me and you. I, I sent my son over to help, yes, but it's actually about, it's about us at this level. That's what God wants the church to understand. Ministers are, are just nothing. It's actually God who's the shepherd of the people. It's God who takes care of the flock. It's God who sent the minister with God's word in God's spirit to grow up God's people into God's image. Clay pots are just clay pots. To honor them and, and to say thank you for them is, is, is really a, 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 Godward, a Godward action and it's actually also the Godward direction that helps us to carry out the action that we ought. Looking not at the minister, but looking at the God who sent him. Our focus as a church then now and, and always still more must move past any minister, past any pastor, and on up to the God who in love gave that minister and through the minister gives us what we need. This is what we ought to do actually. Say thank you gratefully to God, honoring God as the one who sent him. And it's how we can remain the kind of church with the minister, even if we don't actually like the minister that much. Your personalities don't quite click. That's okay. To gratefully ask God also to, to protect and to bless and empower such a minister and to encourage him in love and honor. That starts with eyes on God, not eyes on the guy. So I'm going to move on to the second part of this, because like any good relationship, it's a two-way street. There's something on the other side, too. But again, I want to say here, the whole thing, this whole sermon is awkward. I've said several times during this week to people, like, this is a weird sermon. And it is especially awkward for me to preach this because I don't have any sense of, of frustration with, with this congregation. It is a sweet place to be. So I feel like the tone of the passage and the, the ought is somewhat out of place for us. Thank you for that. Thank you for making this awkward for me by being not what Paul's frustrated about, and so sweetly not. But do get the point. This is good, if only and as this is primary. That you realize that the guy who stands here is just a guy. And any gifting here is a gift from God, not from him. So thank you to the Lord first 
And an appropriate follow-out of that is, is to say thank you to the guy too. But thank you to the Lord first. That's what we ought to do. That's how our eyes ought to be lifted up. So we start there with our eyes on God, and then like any good relationship, we also discover there's, this is a two-way street, and that leads us to the second point. The Christ-like minister gives himself for the good of the church. The Christ-like minister gives himself for the good of the church. Verse 14, Paul continues on with this idea of, of burden, of this financial burden that he has scrupulously avoided laying on them, past, present, and future. For, verse 14, I seek not what is yours, but you. I don't want your money. I want you. I want relationship with you for your good. Which is exactly how it is with any parent and child. Generally speaking, of course, there are exceptions. And things often flip as parents get older and needs increase. Yes. But obviously, generally, parents save up and give and spend and sacrifice and die to self for the sake of the good of the kids. That's how it goes, right? And Paul's quite clearly asserting something here. It's the same between me and you, church. I'm your spiritual father, you're my spiritual children, which means you're not here for me, for my sake. I'm here for you, for your sake. Verse 15, very gladly so. This is not a statement about just dry duty or responsibility. It will be my pleasure to spend and be spent for your, the sake of your souls. That is, my pleasure when I get to make conscious choices of sacrifice for you and my pleasure when those choices are more thrust upon me. When those sacrifices come from kids or from God who reigns over everything. Either way, it's my pleasure, church, Paul's saying, to have my life used for the sake of your souls, which is an expression of his love for them. How he loves them. To be used, even used up, for their souls, not for their whims. And not for every and any possible good thing that a, that a congregation or a Christian might need. There are, there are many, many things. That people, congregations, need many material things, they need many friendships, relational things. Also, they sometimes want some things that they shouldn't have, some, some sinful desires. And what Paul's emphasizing here is all those things may be good and right, and congregations and ministers do sometimes get sidetracked into them but the job is about souls. For the good of your souls. That's the focus. Which we probably kind of basically understand to be, to be spiritual in nature. But Paul fleshes it out in the last paragraph. Verse 19 of following. He says the same sort of thing in some different and perhaps more elaborate language. 
He points out how they may have been thinking that all this that he's been saying was about defending himself, but actually it was all for your upbuilding, beloved. All in order to rescue them from what he fears he'll find when he comes otherwise. What he would then be heartbroken over, humbled by, mourning, and would have to correct uncomfortably. Verse 20, this is what it, is doing, what it looks like to do good to their souls, verse 20 and following. What it looks like to build them up would be to rescue them from being trapped in jealousy and quarreling and anger, etc. All that fruit that's listed there, that's like, that's like a fruit list, but not the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the flesh. That's what he's worried he's going to find there. And so he's been laboring so that they won't be in that. Or, verse 21, in the many manifestations of sexual sin that they're still unrepentant of. And I have more to say about this these verses here next week, but see the general thrust of them for now. Paul, as spiritual father, knows what is good for the souls of these Christians, his spiritual children, what would build them up rather than destroy them. And he knows that he's been sent there by God to bring that about, to turn them from the fruit of the flesh and turn them to the fruit of the Spirit. He's been sent there to, to draw them near to God. So they'd be, they would be filled with his spirit. And he knows all through that is going to be hard. There's, there's going to be a bunch of difficulty, but that's what's needed. And so like a good parent, okay. That's what's needed. That's what would be good for them. And that's then what I'm going to eagerly spend myself for. In love, I want to build them up. In love, I want to do good to the souls of my children. That's what's going on. Now, again, the particular situation here and, and how he's going about that and his visiting and the particular sins they're facing, all those are, are quite specific to this situation. We can leave those, those details behind and we can leave the tone behind also and just kind of notice the clear point one that's particularly applicable to ministers with a capital M, pastors, because it's distinct from the church. But I think we can easily see in it something that would apply to all of us in ministry settings that we might be in in general. But here, here's the clear call. Glad-hearted, loving willingness to die to self for the upbuilding of the people of God. Glad-hearted, loving willingness to die to self for the good of the souls of the church. So here's what the pastor is for. Here's what the minister is given to do. To help people see and know and trust God in Christ. That's what should be happening help people see their sin and break off from it by means of the gospel, grace, not law. Law is how you see your sin, but how you break off from it is grace. You break off from it by faith in God's promises, not by works to try to do better. That's what should be happening. God gives a minister to a people to help them see their sin, see God, understand his gospel, and grow by grace through faith, not by works. 
to develop new habits and practices that glorify God and bring joy to one's own life and to point others towards this new life too. That's what should be happening. And the pastor, the minister is placed in the midst of a people to shepherd them towards that no matter what sacrifices are required. Time sacrifices, if necessary, for that. Financial sacrifices, if necessary, for that. Relational, personal leisure, interest, comfort sacrifices, if necessary, for that. To expect and to face attack from numerous directions, particularly spiritual directions, but not only spiritual directions. To not give in to people in their sin or resistance or slowness. To not lose heart, to not compromise the truth. That's what should be happening. That's, that's what the minister is given by God for. All the while keeping in mind that the church does not exist to build up or feed the ego, let alone the wallet of the pastor. The church is not here for the minister, he's here for the church. Paul's opponents had that all backwards. And it is very commonly backwards in our world today. It's not hard to look around at churches or to look into churches and find situations where the pastor kind of thinks the church exists to further his own ego or at least further his own career. We all need to be clear about that. That's not what this is for. Those who would be like Paul give themselves for the good of the church challenging and sometimes frustrating and disheartening as that may be, that is the calling. I think that's pretty clear. That's what ought to be from the minister's side of the relationship. So then I want to ask a similar question, same sort of thought process as in the first point. Okay, so how and why? And very interestingly, same idea here, it's not this way primarily, it's this way primarily. Same dynamic for the minister side of things. This is what the minister should be doing. This is, this is the job assignment, the good of their souls, and this is the cost assignment, whatever is necessary. That's this way, uh, but actually it's this way first and foremost. Look at the middle of verse 19. Right in the middle, he says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. In the sight of God, speaking in Christ. Before the face of God, face to face with him, the one to whom the minister is accountable, and also the one who sent and empowers and directs the ministry all throughout, and the one who supplies for the ministry whatever is needed. That one. This is the sweetness. This, this is the, the hope in this passage. 
A minister stands before an audience and speaks. Maybe it's a congregation assembled here like this. Maybe it's just an audience of, of two people in the minister's study. Whatever, speaking, speaking to an audience and speaks in that moment in Christ. That is, speaks in accord with Christ's desires. Filled with Christ's spirit, speaking Christ's truth, with Christ's heart. And he looks at that audience before him and realizes this is the beloved bride of Christ. Warts and all, but deeply, widely, passionately, eternally loved and being made pure and spotless even in this moment. Part of the weirdness of this sermon is that I'm, I'm telling you what's in my mind when I stand here talking to you. You are the beloved bride of Christ. And to speak in Christ to you, whether it's you here or it's, it's a couple of you down the hallway in my study, to speak as Christ would speak to you, his word to you, with his attitude, with, with his desire in mind. To see you as widely, by him, widely and deeply, passionately and eternally loved. And to realize that he is at work, maybe even in this very moment, I would pray, in this very moment, to, to shape you and form you and cause you to see something of his beauty and to be drawn to him and away from the world. That's what should be going on. And that is incredibly complicated and hard. How, how does anybody do that? How does the minister do that? Or how do any of us do that in any of the ministry settings where, where we find ourselves? Leading a small group, talking to friends, being a parent, talking to your children. How, how does anybody do that? Speak in Christ for the good of the soul of the one you're talking to. How do you do that? You do it when you realize the actual audience is not these or those two. There's, only, there's an audience of one. In the sight of God, speaking in Christ. There is one member in the audience who will judge the work of the minister. To him, we must give account. But who sweetly also is the one who empowers the work and fills the minister and promises and secures whatever success there is to be and moves it all forward to glory. This God, seeing him first and foremost, standing before him is how this minister or any minister can give away his life to the church and not feel the need to secure his life from the church. You see the key there? The first need and the greatest need in the church minister relationship. We need ministers who live before God before they try to minister to the church. Ministers who themselves see the wonder of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb and the grace and the love of God for them. 
nothings that we are, sinners and failures, but still objects of grace ourselves. Godly ministers who don't need the church because their significance and their life and their joy is secure already in God who loved them and gave his own son for them themselves. Such ministers can then be given by God to the church, willingly eager to give themselves away for the joy of the church. It's so strange I'm talking about me. But I think you can extend this and, and say, like, I'm in ministry situations myself, and then you can grab hold of this principle right here. Think about this for yourself, not me. Think about it for yourself. I must live before God first. Because only then will I be able to love others like God loves them. And only then will I be able to spend my life for them like he has. Because only then do I, I see and actually experience that I'm getting my life from God first and I'm deeply known and loved by him first. And I don't need these ones that I'm giving to to do that for me. I'm good. That's how any one of us can minister, can give away our lives, can spend ourselves to do good to others. Live before God first. Where do you need? Think about yourself. Where do you need to remember that? What situations are you in where the call in front of you is, I need to do good to the soul of this other person here? Maybe a Christian, maybe not a Christian. Maybe a, maybe a friend or a neighbor who, the good you need to do is you need to tell them about Jesus. Where do you need to grab a hold of this? I need myself to live before God first and then to minister. It applies to all of us, I think, but especially to ministers of the church. Pray for such ministers and encourage them towards God and recognize that in the end, if you find some, you have only found a clay pot God is the light in that one. And so never, ever, ever worship the man, the clay. Honor him, sure, yeah. Worship God. Give thanks to God. He's the good shepherd himself. He's the father of all of us who is grabbing hold of us, carrying us in his hands, giving his life for us once, and then every day as he lays down his life again and again for us, that he might build up his beloved people and bring us to joy. He's the minister of the church in the end. He's the shepherd of the flock. And all thanks and all praise should go to him. From me and from you. God has designed a really interesting situation here where, where he is over us and then also under shepherds are over the flock. And I think we should say thank you to him for that. And gratefully acknowledge and then pursue what we ought to be in this relationship wherever you find yourself.
Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.